Well, so I wanted to share a testimony, Corey. I just felt like yesterday watching some of the stuff go on at the Capitol building, and it was a little sad. Um, well, it's real sad, but I wanted to. I was thinking about the goodness of God, and we left off on our last podcast that said, "For the mighty God shall deliver His covenant people." Yep. And that deliverance is comes in so many ways. I need deliverance from my depression every day and my own sins and my carnalness. But as a people, we need delivered. But um, Sunday, last Sunday was Sacrament Sunday, the first one of the new year. And um, my wife and my son and I, we all went to church together. It was the first time since we both had COVID that we were all back as a family. And um, after the sacrament service, we were driving home and I it was an interesting service, and I, I wanted to see what my wife said. She doesn't say a lot. A lot of the time, she's she's pretty quiet and keeps to herself her thoughts. But I said, what, what did you think of that service? And she she just thought for a minute, and she said, it was solemn. And I thought, that's a perfect word. Um, it was solemn from, from the moment uh, of the opening comments by the pastor and the pastoral prayer by Brother Marlon Gwynn. Um, there was a heaviness there, but not not a bad heaviness. Just, I just maybe like a a weight of the spirit. I I, I don't know how to describe it. But as we were uh, receiving the sacrament, you know, when my wife and I came down with with both with COVID, we both lost our taste and smell. Mine came back in a few days, and hers never came back. And uh, you know, days turned into weeks, turned into going on three months now. And I, I talked to a nurse practitioner friend of mine that had it, and she said it's been seven months, and I still can't taste or smell anything. And so we're thinking, well, that's maybe a permanent thing, you know? Uh-huh. I don't know. But as we were sitting there and and uh, taking the sacrament, I was thinking about her, and I, you know, I've prayed to the Lord, help help Kristen, you know, be able to taste again. But this was different, and um, it's one of those times where you just feel like your prayer has come so easy and it's just guided, you know, maybe by the presence of the spirit. And, and, and I said something to the Lord, like, Lord, she's never complained. She never complains about anything. She's gracious. I know you love her. And, and I know she's fine either way. She, she still loves you. And, but if you could just bring back a little joy in her life and allow her to taste and smell again, I know you can do it and you don't have to. And then she's probably not asking you to, but, mm. and, uh, I prayed that prayer, and, and the next morning, um, she made this big batch of scrambled eggs for the week that we could heat up for breakfast. I got a text message from her. She goes, man, these eggs taste great. I didn't even think about it. Oh, wow. <clears throat> and she came home that night, and she goes, did you see my text? I said, yeah. She goes, those eggs are wonderful. I said, can you taste them? She goes, yeah. And I grabbed a can, I go, can you smell this? She goes, oh, yeah, I can smell. Now, for we're going on three months. Is that coincidence? Wow. Is that, I don't, I don't. Those are those mysteries that I don't understand, but it seems odd to me that that uh, just to have that feeling and that prayer, and then the next day everything's restored. Yeah. So I'm thankful to the Lord for that. Mm, but that's cool. we haven't done a stories in the saints in a while, and so I just wanted to share that testimony. And I have one other testimony. My son won't share it because he's definitely afraid of public speaking, he says. But, you know, he he's had knee pain since he was a little boy and he he would wake up crying in the night and Kristen would rub his legs and we got him this little knee brace that he would wear sometimes growing up but he he always had knee pain I remember and uh, this year in soccer he hurt his knee and he couldn't even hardly walk and he couldn't play soccer anymore and 
we took him to the doctor. We tried different pain medicine. I'd come home and he'd be icing his knee or putting heat on it one night. And we got an MRI and this showed some cartilage loss. And after <clears throat> trying different things and, and not getting any better, he couldn't run and we couldn't play pickleball anymore. Mm. Uh, I just talked to him. I said, buddy, we've tried everything science-wise and the doctors and medicine. You know, you could always talk to your grandpa or somebody to administer to you. And just kind of left that out there. Well, one day he, he came to me and said, hey, I, I talked to Grandpa, and him and Jack Hagenson are going to administer to me. And he was heading over on a Sunday to his, to my dad, his grandpa, and then he was going to spend the night. And so before he left, we had prayer at the house. And it was one of those times, again, where he said, Lord, it doesn't mean you love Weston anymore if you heal him, and and we know that you love us either way, but... You know, if, if this would be something that you choose to do, we we just ask you do it. And he went off, and the next day I got a text from him, and he said, my knees don't hurt. Mm. And when he got home that night, we talked, and he said, yeah, they, they put their hands on my head, Dad, and my knees just felt really warm, and all the pain went away. And he was running, sprinting the next day with no pain. And wow. I used to come home and just see him with his knee up, icing it on the couch, and and it's been – it's been good to go. So he calls him his Holy Spirit knees now. So. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. But I just oh, thought man. with uh, some of the sadness yesterday, I just wanted to bring some glory to our Heavenly Father and thank him for his compassion when he chooses to reach down and make our lives a little better. So That's beautiful. Thank you. Welcome to Restore Gospel Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Mike Barrett. I'm Corey Stark. We are two friends having casual conversation about the things of eternity, and we welcome you into that conversation. It's been a while, buddy. How you doing? I'm well. How are you, bud? I'm doing good. I appreciate your testimony. Hey, uh, we are in a series called What Does the Book of Mormon Teach? Focusing on the message of the Book of Mormon. And the last time we were together, we, we were talking about what does the Book of Mormon teach about the Holy One of Israel? And we left off with this line in Second Nephi 5, 42. For the mighty God shall deliver his covenant people. Um, we talked about Enos, and, and then we backed up a little bit. But where, where are we at today, Corey, talking about this Holy One of Israel? You know, I've been so excited to come back to this very topic. I'm glad you opened it up with that because um, we've been in the Book of Mormon and Jacob and Nephi, Jacob's the younger brother of Nephi, have uh, been writing about how their people who would fall away would one day return to God. And he says, I'm going to explain to you some of this through words that we've been given through Isaiah. And, and what we're about to touch on here, I think, is some of the most profound scripture in the world. Not, not that you could say, ah, this scripture is better than others. I don't mean that. But for this reason, Isaiah is one of these writers who, when you look at these four levels of scripture that we talked about, the Hebrews kind of classified into things that were plain and things that were maybe allegorical and things that were deep and then things that were mysterious. They sort of had these four different words for them. And, and, the, and the surface level was plain and plainness. And that word even occurs in the Book of Mormon. It doesn't occur in the Bible, but it does. It, when he says, I'm speaking to you plainly, well, 
Nephi and Jacob have this spiritual gift to explain the deeper scripture. And what they do is they start unfolding Isaiah. And these guys, in my opinion, are the world's best commentators on Isaiah. There's a lot of people, right, try to come up with answers to scriptures and explain Isaiah and Daniel and Revelation and all these ones. But <clears throat> these guys, they they not only lived, you know, a couple hundred years after Isaiah, they understood the culture and the people here he was speaking to and that and, and beyond that there's there's another deeper spiritual element they god washed his spirit on their minds in the same way he did isaiah so that they understood it, it wasn't like they had to figure it out they they were spoken to by god in the same way that god spoke to isaiah and they understood through the spirit of prophecy what he meant by his words so so what we get in a, uh where we left off here in the second book of Nephi, chapter 5, is this sandwiching of Jacob's words with then Isaiah's words, and then Jacob coming back and explaining. And then Nephi does the same thing. You know, in Second Nephi 5, 6, 7, we get um, Jacob explaining some of Isaiah. And then we get, it's kind of like, Nephi lets the younger brother take the wheel for a while, and he's amazing for for things that I'd like to show as we open up the word here in a little bit. But then in the in the latter chapters, Second Nephi nine, ten, eleven, twelve, Nephi takes the wheel back, and he writes some of Isaiah, and he explains even deeper. He takes it even farther, and I never understood this. I, I, it's not like I was, you know, I've known these things for a long time. These are things I've just realized in the last few weeks how amazing it is that they've taken some deep, complex scripture and they've brought it to light and they're showing what these words mean and they're, they're things that are applying to our days right now, our weeks we're living in right now. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. Yesterday, I, I, we're recording this, but the last time we actually recorded it's been at least uh, three or four weeks. And so I wanted to go back and listen to the last, the 100th episode and just kind of refresh my mind and so I tried to pick up here in Second Nephi and start reading, and it's just one of those days where it's right. It gets pretty deep into some Isaiah and talking about things, and, and my mind's just going, I don't understand these words or this time period. And uh, so it was difficult yesterday, and I, I kind of got frustrated a little bit. I'm like, oh, man, this is pretty dry. I don't know. This is the part I used to skip over when I was a little child. So <laughs> same, same here. You know, it, it's funny you mentioned that. I'm glad you brought that up, in fact, because— you know, if people like to mark their scriptures, I realized in my own scripture markings, I would have markings on the words that were Nephi and Jacob's words, but I didn't mark anything along Isaiah's words. It was always just like clean, pristine pages because I, I just it was like yeah. flyover scripture, you know, right. I'll skip this, you know, this is Isaiah, we can't understand this. Well, I'm going to tell you something, and this was just literally in the last two weeks, I mean, around Christmas time when... Um, uh, we were recording. I, for the first time in my life, I thought, no, wait, these words are in here for a reason. In fact, about one third of all of Isaiah's writings are in the Book of Mormon. And not only are they included, but they're explained, which is interesting. It's really mm. interesting. But what I realized that Isaiah does so masterfully is his Hebrew poetry. And the, and the reason I, I bring this up is because Here's, a, here's something I just realized in how to start understanding Isaiah a little bit better. Remember when we talked about Hebrew poetry is not trying to make words rhyme like we do in English, but it's trying to make ideas rhyme, right, to convey meaning. 
And so if you look at, um, I, I started deciding, hey, rather than just trying to get the big picture of this, let's focus in on what some of these verses do. And where, um, I don't know, like if you flip ahead to Second Nephi 5, like 75, what, when you see a little bit of this, you realize it goes uh, a, a long way towards understanding Isaiah. Second Nephi five seventy five says, "Hearken unto me, my people, and give ear unto me, O my nation." Well, what that is is, if you remember this idea of parallel ideas, the first half of the phrase, "Hearken unto me, O my people," it's like to listen, and the second part is, "And give ear unto me, O my nation." So there's parallels between hearken and Give ear. Give ear, right. And then it's unto me, O oh my people, and then it parallels with, O oh my nation, right? Mm-hmm. My people and nation. And so when this, when you continue, look at the next verse. For a law shall proceed from me, and I will make my judgment to rest for a light thing from the people. So the law and his judgment, right? They're parallel ideas, right? Um Look at 77, for righteousness is near and salvation is gone forth. Righteousness and salvation, that's his purpose. These are, these are all parallel ideas. Um, they, you know, go on down to 79, lift up your eyes to the heavens and look under the earth beneath your eyes and look and heavens and earth. You start to see those parallels. Well, well once you see that, you realize that's how Isaiah writes. And, and I, I got to back up because Isaiah is the guy who said, hey, I'm the guy who's, you know, kind of from this place where we don't use the best language. And, you know, he was like bemoaning his inadequacy when God says, I got a job for you. Right. You're going to speak to people. And when that coal touches his lips that the angel brings off the altar, it's more than just purging his sin. It was giving him the ability to think and then articulate these beautiful parallelisms from God. And what this is, I, I, I considered that it, it wasn't just that the Hebrews spoke this way or thought this way. It's that these are the ways God wanted to convey ideas to us to, through the parallelisms so we could see and understand. And um, and once you start seeing how these parallelisms work, you realize this is how God spoke to the minds of people in throughout Scripture when it was inspired. And, and you see this throughout the Book of Mormon. And what Jacob and Nephi do is they they continue in these parallelisms even in deeper ways than Isaiah does, which is really profound once you see what's happening. But, um, you know, all these Scriptures, like down to verse 81, but my salvation will be forever. My righteousness shall not be abolished. The forever abolished, the salvation is righteousness. Well, once I started seeing these parallelisms, then you realize that all these parallels fall into uh, larger statements. Some, sometimes there's a, there's a lot of description to make a point, but what God is talking about through the middle of 2 Nephi 5 is how he's going to restore Israel and what he's going to do with them. And so the scripture you just read, backing up to um, 2 Nephi 5 and... Um, 42, the mighty God shall deliver his covenant people. What follows after this, the rest of the chapter, 
are Isaiah's words. And Isaiah's describing how God's going to do that, but he's doing it in these parallelisms. And it's sometimes it's kind of flowery, but there's a, there's a beautiful story told. And then if we don't get it there, we find that Jacob and Nephi explain it. They give us the bullet points of what, he, of what Isaiah is saying. And so one of the things that I, I loved about just thinking about from the last time we podcasted till, till now was this next line that says, um, verse 43, For thus saith the Lord, I will contend with them that contendeth with thee. See, this is what the world hasn't seen yet. And, and where I want to kind of start this is with my own little story. Uh, when I was in the third or fourth grade, um, I walked to school, as most of us did, and rode our bikes. And it was a it was a long way. It wasn't like you could, you know, I don't know. We we kind of went down the sidewalk. We crossed a busy road, and then we cut through some people's yards, and then we went through these woods. We crossed a creek. This is the fun way to go to school. And then we'd, <laughs> we'd kind of meander along this creek and climb up this hill, and there was a cemetery, and you'd go diagonally through the cemetery, and then you'd walk down a couple more blocks, and you'd come to our house. And that was always fun. Well, um, it was an adventure when we walked to school that way. But um, being in the third or fourth grade, you know, sixth graders were pretty big and mighty. And there was this one kid who, uh, for some reason decided that I was going to be his target. And I guess today we call it bullying. And that's probably what we called it back then too. But, um, just because I was a third or fourth grader, I have no idea why this kid decided to like hang out after school and threaten me and stuff. And so sometimes I would like sprint through these woods and everything. So this kid couldn't find me because for some reason he, he had it in for me. And I can remember looking at him and it was the only person I knew in, in my childhood who like his eyes were kind of like, it was almost like kind of red and dark around him. It was like when I saw a star Wars movie for the first time many years later and saw Darth Vader's evil master, <laughs> I thought that kid got a job. You know, <laughs> he, he became him. So, so this kid was bigger than me. He was taller than me. He was just mean. He had it in for me, but I was always, you know, in this time period, I can't even remember how long it lasted. I was always on the lookout because this kid was just a menace and he was threatening to, I don't know if he's going to beat me up or do whatever, but I didn't even know his name. He didn't know my name. It was, it was just, <laughs> that's, that's the logic behind it. Right. Bullying. Right. So for a, a while in my life, there was this kid who I was trying to hide from and avoid. And, um, I feared I'd never been in a fight or anything like that. Didn't know what would happen if something like that happened. Well, it was winter time of that year, and um, my dad and I, when I was younger, liked to ice skate. He he grew up on a farm, and there was a river that would freeze over. And he told stories about ice skating with his cousins on the frozen river. And so, even though you know he was my dad and I was a kid, we liked to go ice skating sometimes at this little outdoor uh, ice skating rink up in Michigan where I lived. And uh, one, and, and most ice skating rinks are the same. You know, most of the people just kind of go in a lazy circle around and around and around. Well, you know, I'm the kid who wants to be a hockey star someday. And so I'm cutting around diagonally, going zipping in and out. And I'm just in my own little world. And my dad's there ice skating. And when I went ice skating with my dad, it's like the only time we were together was just in the car going. Because as soon as I was at the skating rink, yeah, I was a kid just doing my own thing. Right. So we're ice skating one night. And all of a sudden I'm skating around. And in my own world, and all of a sudden, I feel an arm push me up against the wall. And who is it? But it's this kid who I'd been avoiding from school, who had been, you know, threatening me or whatever. And now it was like there was nowhere to run. There was nowhere to go. And this was this, and I thought, 
I am. I don't know. Didn't know what was going to happen. I also knew I was really scared because this tall, menacing kid looking down at me, like he's going to about ready to punch me. It's like I still didn't even know his name. But <laughs> but as I'm standing there thinking, oh my gosh, I don't know what what's going to happen. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, this huge arm comes and separates him and I, and this bully kid looks straight up into the eyes of my six foot four dad who on ice skates was probably six, seven, even taller. <laughs> and my dad wasn't a man of many words, but he must've saw what was going on. I forgot he was even around in, in not very many words. I think he said scram punk. And this kid looked up and he was just shaking <laughs> because my, my dad came in between him and I, and I had never considered that this bullying issue that I was feeling threatened by at school was going to be resolved by my dad at that skating rink. That kid never came near me again. And, and it's not my, like my dad threatened him. His presence just made right. this kid realize, hey, you know, I need to stop this. I don't think I really even saw that kid again. Well, here's, here's why I share that story. This is the promise that God the Father is making to Israel. He says this, For thus saith the Lord, I will contend with them, that contend with thee, right? The people who are you given, have been giving you problems, I'm going to give them a problem now. And so what Israel's experienced throughout their history, and it's explained by Jacob, if you back up, and this is scripture we shared before, but it's, it's kind of worth repeating. Um, when we were talking about this Holy One of Israel, Jacob writes this, just jumping ahead to the second Book of Nephi, chapter 6, verse uh, verse 8 and 9. He says, I know that you know in the body he will show himself to all those at Jerusalem from whence we came. And it is expedient that he should be among them, for it behooveth the great creator that he suffereth himself to become subject unto man in the flesh and die for all men, that all men might become subject unto him. Now, it's a it's a beautiful parallelism here, but but the point is, all of this scripture is talking about this one person who, you know, God in the flesh, he became subject unto us so that we could become subject unto him. He's the one, he's the one who would end up contending for Israel, even though they rejected him. And and what Jacob goes on to say is that, and yet, although he they would do this or he would do this, that they would harden their hearts. And this is verse uh, 2 Nephi, verse 5, and um, 25 and 26, or, or 24, 25, 26, backing up to this chapter now. And after he showed himself, the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, would manifest himself unto them in the flesh. And after he would manifest himself, they should scourge him, crucify him, according to the words of the angel. And after they had hardened their hearts and wit and stiffen their necks against the Holy One of Israel, the judgments of the Holy One of Israel would come upon them. So what Israel was going to find is that when they had Christ in their midst, this Holy One of Israel wasn't just a person. This was the God of Israel that would take on flesh. When they would reject him, their sufferings would become more than they could possibly bear. This would go on for centuries. But when they turned back to them, to him, 
This is the prophecy. He said, then I reveal my arm in power. This is, this is this time period we're actually, I think, approaching, that when Israel turns back to God, then he says, in that day, then I contend with all these people that have contended with you. You know, all the misery and all the heartache and all the punishment you've endured in the hands of Gentiles, basically. He said, that turns back upon their heads. And that's, this is now what uh, Nephi and Jacob start to explain. Um, yesterday, Corey witnessed, I came home and got a text from my wife. She's like, turn on the TV. And I saw a mob on the stairs in the front of the Capitol building, and they had penetrated the Capitol building. And for a brief moment, I thought about what it would be like to have the structure of our country um, just crumble. Um, I thought, if 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 our government falls to our own people, that I've I never witnessed anything like that. I mean, we we've witnessed attacks from other country that kind of drove us together as a people. You know, in nine eleven, yesterday I saw unrest with our own country turning towards our own our own government and i thought <laughs> i thought about how israel has been kicked around and um basically to summarize they've because they rejected christ they've suffered a long time through the years and he prophesied that what do you see is, uh, I just couldn't help thinking yesterday, the time of the Gentiles being fulfilled. We've talked about that so many times. We're seeing unprecedented things in this country right now. Yeah, yeah. And so this time of the Gentiles is it. You see, Nephi and Jacob, they point out the fact that this gospel would come to the Gentiles, and but the Gentile nations would be judged, and ultimately that return of Israel to God isn't until after there's judgment on the Gentiles. This very thing that we're talking about, he said, I'm going to contend with them that contend with me. I will feed them that oppress thee with their own flesh. They'll be drunken with their own blood as with sweet wine, and all flesh will know that I am the Lord, thy Savior, thy Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. What what I think we need to understand as a church is we've been given this roadmap for a couple hundred years. Whether we've understood it or not is is not the point. Maybe we can share some understanding here, even now. The the overall 30,000-foot view that Isaiah gave and gives right here and that Nephi and Jacob explain is this. The, there would be judgment on the Gentile nations eventually, and when that judgment occurs, it paves the way for righteousness to to grow up again among the Gentiles and the Jews. But the judgment had to happen first and has to happen first. What Isaiah talks about coming up here speaks to, I think, even the day we're living in. When I was going back through these next couple chapters of Isaiah, just last last two weeks, I realized he talks about judgment on this son of man, and then he talks on a man, basically, and then he talks about judgment on a woman. Well, the judgment on the woman was basically the Jews and the church. The judgment on the man was basically the Gentiles and the Gentile nations, and Isaiah speaks to both of them. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, I just I just started seeing this, that it's separated, and in the middle, there's this great chiasm of it all in the middle, and chiasms, I realize, they're hard to talk on the podcast, but this 
whole um, the whole center of it, you know, because you got to see the see the chiasm sometimes. Just talking about it becomes overwhelming. Only, but basically, in the center of this is this God pleading the cause of His people, and He says, "I'm going to take this fury that you've drunk out of Israel." And I'm going to feed it to the Gentiles, right? The the pain and suffering you've endured is theirs. What we're seeing is, I believe, a scripture that could be this. And I, I hate to, I, so many people do this, and I, I just, I refrain to say, this scripture is happening right now this week, Mike. I'm here right. to tell you, right? I don't want to, I'm not saying that. But Second Nephi 11, verse 116 are Nephi's words, and he's explaining Isaiah as well. Like these six chapters or so are all this. But what he says is this. Um, in the last days, this is Second Nephi 11, verse 116. In the last days, or in the days of the Gentiles, that's us, behold, all the nations of the Gentiles and also the Jews, both they which came upon this land and they which shall be upon other lands, even all the lands of the earth, behold, they will be drunken with iniquity and with all manner of abominations. And and what he's opening up to is he said, at this time when you see iniquity among Jews and Gentiles, you know, I think, I don't know if I mentioned even last week, but, you know, in Israel, even though, you know, obviously God helped, you know, his, his arm was revealed in restoring the people to their land, even in the last century, and what an amazing thing that is because it hadn't happened for 2,000 years. But you'd think that everyone in Israel now would walk around with this halo of remembrance over their head and being, you know, righteous and everything. They've got drug problems and, you know, prostitution problems. And I just read that, you know, 9% of Israeli pregnancies end in abortion. You know, it's mm-hmm. like they're, they're dealing with the same worldly temptations that we are. They're people. They're humans just like us, right? And and yet God's got this bigger plan through his covenants to bring not just them, but all of us back to him in a state of righteousness where we don't willfully rebel against him anymore. Um, and so in this, in this time frame of all nations being drunken with, um, with iniquity. It, that, that verse you just read, what does that, what does that mean to you when it says in the days of the Gentiles? What, what, what's that phrase yeah. Mean. Yeah. The, the days of the, like we are prospering, where what does that mean? Um this is this is my understanding. It, it means a couple things, but basically part of it means we well, you come back to first the scriptures can explain it. The first Nephi, I believe it's chapter seven, talks about the gospel coming to the Jews first and then the Gentiles and then the Gentiles and then the Jews. And this is the first shall be last and the last shall be first. People have heard that phrase, but people usually don't know what it means. So is that Uh, days of like opportunity to be, to respond when it says the days of the Gentiles, opportunity to prosper, to, to follow the Lord, to have his word with you? Yeah, I think it's all that. Mm -hmm. I think in a sense, and this is one of those things I, I believe it means when Israel before Jesus was kind of God's people, even though they were rebellious and sinful and idol worshipers and all that kind of stuff. God had his hand on them, you know, visited them in power and everything. And the Gentiles, who were the other nations, were not part of that, right? When Jesus died on the cross, 
this gospel goes to the Gentiles, the people who weren't part of Israel's covenant. You know, this is why Paul's preaching in Rome and other places, you know, and this gospel goes to the Gentile nations. Well, this, the first people would have been the Jews and the last people would have been the Gentiles. Well, the Book of Mormon explains this, that the gospel would come back to the Gentiles before it returns back to the Jews. But this time of the Gentiles means two things. One, I believe it means the time when the Gentiles sort of had spiritual authority and dominion. Even though God didn't visit us in person like he did with Israel, he said, I'll send you my Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been poured out upon us. And whether we acknowledge that or not personally, you know, I know we have a lot of atheists in our nation. The Book of Mormon even uses this term. He said, God would pour out the Holy Ghost upon our nation. You know, this is why we prospered above other nations, whether we acknowledge him for it or not. It's been present. But I believe it's a it's a presence of blessing on the Gentiles. It's a it's it's a reward for faithfulness to a certain extent. You know, use that word kind of loosely nowadays. But it's also the gospel itself. This this pure word that was returned to us would be in our hands. So the times of the Gentiles means that. But it also means this: the Book of Daniel is one of these prophecies that a lot of people have opinions on. But it's explained again, even without mentioning Daniel in the Book of Mormon. And and this is the short synopsis in just a couple sentences. Daniel's interpretation of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream is this huge statue with his head of gold and chest of shoulders and arms of metal and legs of steel and then these toes that are like clay and steel. It's like all this different stuff. Daniel explains to this Gentile king what his dream means. And he said, these different portions of this statue you saw in your dream represent different kingdoms. He said, you, the head, the gold, that's you. That's your kingdom. That's Babylon, right? The Babylonians were a Gentile nation. But the next part, the chest, that would be the next nation. That would be the Persians. All these Gentile nations, and and then it goes down to the Greeks and the Romans, and then the last one, these different nations— the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, historically all dominate Israel, all right? They, they, they occupy their land. They take them captives. Nebuchadnezzar's people were the ones who ransacked Jerusalem at the time, Lehi, shortly after he departs. They're exercising dominion over the Jews and suppressing them. So the, this was, a, in, a, in a way, a time of the Gentiles. But here, here's where I'm going with this. Daniel's revelation completes with a mystery that most of the world doesn't see, but he says there will be, in the last days, there will be one more nation. And he describes how this clay and steel that don't mix, he said there would be people that don't mix in a sense, like nations combined, but they would be the final oppressor of Israel. And what this point was is that Militarily, politically, spiritually, even emotionally, these Gentiles would be oppressing Israel until the last days. And that, I believe, was the Holocaust of, of that the Jews endured. That See, <clears throat> through all these times, they've been oppressed by, by Gentile nations. But the Gentile nation's oppression of Israel will end. And this is what Jesus is saying I'm going to contend with them that have contended with thee. I'm going to feed them their own flesh. You know, the things they've done to you, they're going to get back times 10. And this is 
what the Book of Mormon has said all along, we've never put this two and two together, that the Gentiles will undergo judgment and the, and the Book of Mormon says it's going to be worse than anything the heathen experienced. And this is the end of Third Nephi 9, right before it talks about establishing Zion. And this is why our people have got to understand what the Book of Mormon says pr- foremost, more than anyone's testimony in a Wednesday night service, more than what you even understand happened in our brief history from the 1830s till now and people's thoughts of Zion. Those things can... <laughs> They can mislead you from understanding this greater truth that Zion would never happen in this time of the Gentiles. Zion does not happen until the gospel returns to Israel. And that's what the Book of Mormon teaches. This is why it goes back to Joseph's tribe, the very people who wrote this word that we have in our hands. It goes back to them. And when it goes back to them, they become like a lion. They become, as Jesus said, like this lion who can tread down and tear in pieces and then no one can be delivered from. There's a spiritual time of awakening that Israel is going to see that coincides with also the Gentile judgment. And so we've always kind of had this idea, and this is where I think we've gone astray, that, oh, well, all we got to do is we, we could have had Zion already if we were just good enough and we were just good enough. That's kind of how we always taught ourselves. That's how we almost lured people into the church saying, hey, you know, we're going to build Zion and we're going to have this. But we left out all these parts of the covenant that the judgment on the Gentile nations was twofold. It was one, it was in return for the prophecy that, hey, when Israel calls on God, and it's starting to happen right now without our help, that's when God's passion for them ignites again. And I, I, I say that as if he didn't. Of course, he's always had it. But that's when he says, these words, all these bad things that Gentile nations have done to Israel gets turned back on them. And he said, I reach out my hand. This is where he says, hey, nursing mothers, they might forget my children, but I'm not forgetting you. You know, I'm, I'm going to reveal my arm in power. These are all the things that Jacob and Nephi start to write. So, I'm probably going a little long here, but you ask, what is the time of the Gentiles? The time of the Gentiles is when the nations had authority over Israel, and that comes to an end. The time of the Gentiles is also when, I believe, our very people, our nation, our church, who's been given this gospel, kind of sidesteps it or rejects it, or at least rejects the very Messiah who gave it to us. And we're seeing that largely through our society, through the things we're espousing, right? But it's all been part of the story, and the story doesn't end there. It gets better from there. Yeah, I don't. I don't think we can go too long on this because I, I, I just feel like we are seeing these these type of things being lived out right, you know, daily in the news, and as we're seeing things happen. I, I thought yesterday, what what does the world think right now? Watching the news of Americans overrunning their own Capitol building. Mm-hmm. What, what signal does that give to other countries, to other powers at play? Um, I think for a while there was... Misery there were, loves company, right? Yeah. Because it happens all over there, right? We, but I thought for a while, you know, there's going to come a time when another country would come against us and try to invade us. And now you're just seeing that, you know, we're going to implode from the inside. And then that may happen. I don't know, but... But the danger is right here among us, our own hearts, our own sinful hearts in this country, the powers that be. I don't know if there's a mass conspiracy or not, but I know evil is stirring up the hearts of evilness. You know, people that love evil, Satan's taking every every thought and turning it evil, and the hearts of men are turning evil in this country and on so many levels. And we're watching that happen. 
at the same time, you know how the Jews sometimes are referred to like the house of Israel or the 12 tribes, and then there's the Jews, but they're referring to the whole house of Israel. And <clears throat> when we're talking about Gentiles, I wonder how the scriptures pertain to the United States because we're the most powerful, largest, quote, Gentile nation in in the world. Maybe not for much longer, but for the last few hundred years as we've you know, since the revolution and since we've we've come over here and the Lord's you know, I just read Ether again, the the um the promises to this land here when people obey obey the Lord. When we talk about Gentiles is is prophetically is America the largest Gentile nation, do you think? I know we think we're adopted in and numbered among the Book Bormer says that, but what do you think? Yeah, this nation is the one that was this choice land above all other lands. And as long as we served the God that brought us here, that, you know, things would be good. And and that's what it comes down to. You know, you you mentioned imploding from within. I I think, you know, this nation, whether we're the largest in number, you know, you look at China, well, they've got more people. They would be a Gentile nation as well, right? And, And but yet we're the one with the blessings that have been fulfilled throughout Scripture. The, the judgment is always, I think, upon those who knew the most and then willfully rebelled yeah, the most. Yeah, because China, by, by and large, was never a Christian no, nation. Right, pagan. Uh, yeah, yeah. Same with the with, – but I was – it's only been a couple hundred years, Corey, like yeah. 1700, when you know, the Revolutionary War – I said earlier that it was unprecedented, but there was – now there was, the, I mean, the early revolution and the colonies and civil war. Yeah, everything was unstable as the government was was trying to be birthed and come into fruition and be this place of freedom. Mm-hmm. That wasn't that long ago, but but in our, um, you know, in my generation and the generation before, for the last couple hundred years, we've watched. You know, England and and France it was like the main Gentile uh, nation fighting with each other, and then. America was just this country that hadn't even been birthed yet, and now here we are in the in this this huge, massive land. We're we're how many times bigger than 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 uh, Great Britain? Yeah, um, right. populated and this huge Gentile nation just just so by and large, it seems like Gentiles in the last couple hundred years has been America has been the largest, uh, most productive Gentile nation. Oh, definitely. You know when. I say I don't like to take a scripture and say, well, this is now. But you ask this great question, you know, what are the times of the Gentiles? Um, it's it's probably something that I know we've talked about it before, but we can probably even dedicate a podcast to explaining some of the details of it because right now we're just doing 30,000-foot view. But how I said it, I don't like to say, well, this is this is this scripture is today, this week. People have fallen into traps doing that. But what's interesting to me is that, the time of the Gentiles ending was stated in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 45, uh, 4D, um, just starting off with section 4B. The love of men will wax cold, iniquity abound, when the time of the Gentiles has come in. A light shall break forth among them that sit in the darkness and it should be the fullness of my gospel. So in this time of the Gentiles, the light would break forth. But they receive it not, for they perceive not the light. 
and they turn their hearts from me because of the precepts of men. So this light comes to the Gentiles, right? And the Gentiles kind of say, ah, we don't like this light. Let's, let's mock it. Let's preach from every evangelical pulpit against it. Let's make plays on Broadway called the Book of Mormon and mock, you know, every, mm-hmm. everyone who's ever been associated with it. But what's interesting is for, you know, so, so they won't receive it. They won't receive the light and truth. But 4D is this verse, and it says, in that generation shall the time, shall, let me, <clears throat> sorry, in that generation shall the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So when this gospel comes and they reject it, that's also when this time ends. And there shall be men standing in that generation that shall not pass until they shall see an overflowing scourge, for a desolating sickness shall come over the land. Now, that was given in, you know, early 1800s. We've had sicknesses before, you know, in 18, 1917, rather, or 1918, the Spanish flu killed millions of people. But but I don't think the time of the Gentiles ended then. You know, I'm sure back then people were saying that. It's been 100 years ago. People in the church were probably saying, see, this is now. But I think we've got more evidence now of being drunken in iniquity, mm-hmm. right, in all nations. And so I don't know. I, I think that's uh, from a restoration viewpoint. It used to be pointed out that uh, the rejecting rejecting the Book of Mormon as a book, like you said, Hollywood mocking the Book of Mormon and things like that, that people, let's say it this way, people not acknowledging that the Book of Mormon is a divine book is rejecting the gospel. Yeah, that's what we say. Right? But that's, that's not even close. Uh, right. we, we, our church, Americans, reject the gospel when we don't, just have this love affair with our creator, our God, that we don't make him our number one love exactly. and, and um, allow him into our heart and live our life for him. And all of the truths that we're bringing, trying to bring out in what does the Book of Mormon teach is that you have to, you have to be one with your creator and he is your number one priority. And wanting to be with him is is the number one priority. That's rejecting the gospel. Amen. It's not. Amen. But uh, we would look at like, oh, you know, they they make plays and they mock the Book of Mormon. They're rejecting the gospel. Well, that's part of it too. But it's the spirit behind that. That no, they don't care about God. We don't care about God. We want to feed our own carnal flesh. That's that's a hundred percent it, Mike. Just, I, right? Idol worship. The Jews idol worship. They they just kept leaving their number one love. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. And 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 this is when you look around at a nation and you see you know the the Christian faith dwindling and being overwhelmed with just every idea from media, um, and then you find this simple gift that God said, "Hey, I'm going to give this." so you won't stumble here here so you can just know how to come to me and realizing our own people our own people kind of ignore this book you know three different times in the book of mormon um i've read just this week where it says hey the book of mormon are given for your instruction and the elders and the priests and the teachers i'm reading from section 42 um are to teach the principles of my gospel in the Bible, in the Book of Mormon, which is the fullness of the gospel. And I've looked at certain principles, and I, and I know we've hammered this from time to time, but, you know, it, it, it didn't take long. It was like Section 83 where it says, hey, this church is under condemnation until they repent and remember the New Covenant, even the Book of Mormon and the commandments, which I've given them not only to say but to do according to that which I've written. Well, Section 83 was written in 1832, 
The Book of Mormon was printed in 1830. I mean, the ink wasn't dry on the Book of Mormon, and the church is already being condemned for not using it. Well, the reason I share this is because, you know, I've, I've realized that for having so much light and truth, we as our people, collective restoration, haven't been that effective sharing it. But part of it is because early on, we got a lot of the story twisted ourselves. And now I look back and think maybe it was good we didn't have that much success because the success... You know, we start teaching people things like, and, and here I'm going to go on it, you know, hey, there's infinite levels of salvation. Well, I'm sorry, that was Brigham Young's idea, and he's the one who espoused that, and 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 that's not what the Book of Mormon teaches. It says life and death are on a parallel, right? We, we teach, you know, here we are supposedly this church of God, and I, I'm going to say this with boldness because we're told right here, we have not taught what the Book of Mormon says. Well, what does the Book of Mormon say about God? It doesn't mince any words. It doesn't confuse any things. Well, God might be three. God might be one. And, and it, it clearly states this Holy One of Israel was God the Father who took on flesh. It, and, and maybe that was the simple message we were supposed to share. But instead, we sidestep that, saying, oh, we can't know who God is or what God is. We, you don't know about salvation until the end, and hopefully you get celestial glory, but you'll probably end up with some moon glory or star glory, but it's better than what you got now, so be happy with that. You know, It's like the Book of Mormon teaches none of that. And, and, and our commission was to teach that we're in the grasp of justice and that all mankind was hopeless, hopelessly lost unless the Creator himself stepped in with an infinite atonement because unless it was infinite, there was no way our sins could be reconciled so that our repentance could make a difference. We we haven't shared that simple message. We, we turn it into all these other little tangents like, oh, well, you got to know the church is restored, and here's all the little building blocks of the priesthood, and then we, we kind of even, you know, we, we embellish all these little side things. And I think we've missed the main message, which is this redeeming message to the world that this God who created the universe came down, and unless we bow to him and confess him as our God, that we are hopelessly lost. And this is the message that should be promoted well beyond just the fact that, well, God restored the church, and here if you want to join the church, well, this is you know the congregation you come to and all this. And we've missed these things and, 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 and promoted ourselves when our commission is told here in these words, and, and we can share them without shame and you know unabashedly, not that we're just holding, saying, hey, we have the Book of Mormon and we're the restored church now, Let's tell you about a lot of deep mysteries. No, let's tell the simple fact about who Christ is and what it means to come to him. That's what we've been told to do. And so we have a nation that needs this message. We have a world that needs this message. And the prophecies are that eventually this message comes back to the very people whose ancient forefathers wrote it. And they say, yeah, this makes sense. This clicks. And their hearts turn towards God. And when that day happens and is happening, I believe right now, we're going to see things. We're, we're going to see both the left hand of God. We're going to see the judgment of God on the left hand come upon nations, but we're going to see the right hand of God, his arm and power come to restore anyone who will come to him at the same time. I, I just, I just desire to want God. I desire to want God above all else. And it's a great struggle for me just is, so many things we all struggle with that and i mean that that is the common struggle of man i mean everything boils down to that that we desire other things other than his holiness and um my prayers have been different lately uh i just i feel like i don't even want to come up with my own prayers anymore i just want 
I want the Holy Spirit to intervene. And, and Corey, I've had a prayer that's just one or two sentences, and it's all I can really pray anymore, but I'll be driving around, and, and it comes to my mind. I say, Lord, just help me crave righteousness. Mm. Just help me desire. Help me desire righteousness, you know. Help it be sweet to me. Uh, help it to be my one desire. Just help me crave righteousness and despise the filthiness of sin. And that's that's where I'm at right now in my life. And and I think we all we all that's the basic building block probably of all of our relationship with God to some extent. Yeah, yeah. And and the Lord says, you know what? That's that's all it takes, you know. Mm-hmm. That's all it takes. That's the change of heart, and from there I do the rest, right? <laughs> yeah, fifty years on the planet almost, and uh, and my prayers have been whittled down to one sentence, and that's something. Yeah, but it's maybe the best sentence, you know, in the end. I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. But I'm. That's why. I, but I'm. I'm helpless, Corey. I really am helpless. There is nothing within this carnal body other than the Holy Spirit that can crave righteousness. Uh, and that's why when the Book of Mormon says our God's mighty to save, that we, we can't on the other speak out of the other side of our mouth and say, you know, but he's not really. He, he can save you to some extent, but you're going to suffer for what you never had power to do anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, and that's, to me, that's the, the eternal life theory. You're going to suffer for, you're going to be suffering for eternity for what you can never do anyway. You, you're either mighty to save me or not. Um, Oh, the age-old battle. <laughs> yeah. Well, what do you think? We uh, we got into the Gentiles. I probably sidetracked you a little bit, but no, it's all good. It's been a while. A lot of things happen yeah. <laughs> are happening fast in yeah, society between podcasts. It's <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, well, where Nephi and Jacob go with this is, I I'm excited by this because as it was written in the Book of Mormon in the times when the words of Isaiah would be fulfilled, men would know of a surety. And and these are the things that if we if we take what Nephi and Jacob explain about Isaiah and start to see, these are the things that are unfolding right now is that we should expect the Gentile nations to be judged. And you know, as sad as the things that we associate with politics in our nation uh, have, have just transpired this week as sad as it was to witness part of it in the back of my head was just saying yeah but it has to be this way ultimately Mm -hmm. because this is you know this is what was prophesied and i don't know i I don't know where it all goes um i've always tried to be an optimist in you know i'm not a harbinger of, of doom or a message like that um my my feeling is that hey when the left hand of God moves, the right hand of God moves as well, and, and that we can look for great and mighty powerful things to happen and don't need to be in despair over uncertainty in our, our land and nation. Um, I marvel sometimes, Mike, that the Nephites were able to just function and write these deep thoughts and words, prophetic words, beyond their day as a gift to us when they were consumed with just trying to live, you know, just trying to eke out a living, coming to a land with 
nothing, no infrastructure, no anything and establish a society and then having half the family take up arms against you and here, you know, you don't know how many days, we don't know how many days of their lives they were just spending wielding the sword and recovering from wounds and it was like that's enough to get your attention I think most of the time and here here they wrote all these great mighty words for our day our day and how important it is we we hold on but how did how they lived without being distracted by all that you know that that's funny that i was reading in first nephi this week and you know lehi's prophesying and then he says uh, and they gathered up their things and and all and departed into the wilderness and i thought how many times i've read that line and it's just okay they went off into the wilderness it's to think about gathering up food and clothing and supplies and leaving your place of residence and moving out in faith and leaving your community, your home, your friends, your your way of life. That 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 phrase and departed into the wilderness, that's that's not something that, that just happens in a paragraph. I mean, can you imagine what their life was like and and so it's <laughs> Right now, I, I got to make a shameless plug real quick because I want to respond to. That. I'm working on this. What does the Book of Mormon teach outline? And it's it's getting longer than the Book of Mormon. No, it isn't. But it's, <laughs> it's like just read the Book of Mormon. That's easier. But um, it, in this uh, outline, uh, which the shameless plug is actually that we're going to start teaching a series at Colburn Road this uh, beginning. What's this Sunday, the tenth of January? So if you're hearing this, come out and join us. I don't know how long it'll go, um, but we're going to be teaching. What does the Book of Mormon teach at Sunday school starting at 10 a.m. If you want to join this, um, the point though is that in this process, it occurred to me one of the things the Book of Mormon teaches is resilience, and the reason I share this is because, like you just mentioned, Lehi's family going into the wilderness, so. What my human nature is, when things get hard, you know, I, I want to suddenly think that if I'm suffering, well, God must not have, he must have abandoned me, right? This can't be his plan now, right? Um, and, and you know, we just have these little smidgens of, of their day-to-day life, but yet Lehi's family struggling, their collective struggling was bad because they were fearing they were going to die. This is from First Nephi 5. And they, they're bemoaning and murmuring to Lehi, we have suffered much affliction, hunger, thirst, and fatigue, and after all these sufferings, we must perish in the wilderness with hunger. I mean, they were, they were starving, you know? Mm-hmm. And to think, you know, how many times did Lehi think, maybe I didn't really have that vision, because <laughs> this is really bad, right? And so, you know, despite, you know, all through the Book of Mormon, you see this, despite God placing his hand on spiritual leaders, like even Moroni, who had this gift of many gifts, right? And he's like, hey, if everyone could be like Moroni, there wouldn't be any sin in the world. Well, it says Moroni was wounded, and then Jacob, his captain partner, was killed in battle. You know, it's like, okay, that must have hurt, right? <laughs> and it's, how do you get, how do, how do you reconcile, hey, God sent me on this mission, but now I'm bleeding and I could die? Um you, you see missionaries, Ammon and his brothers, who are tied up and starved in prisons for a while. You know, did God really send them on that errand? Why did suffering occur? And, and finally, the one that got me the most, Mormon, the one who abridges all these records, the one one person that God puts his hand on out of all the people of the world, and he says, you take all these plates, and, and I'm going to inspire you to pull the, the best things out for these Gentiles in, in a couple thousand years. Moroni seals up his record and says, oh, and 
my father and the the band of people he was with, the Lamanites hunted them down and they killed him. You know, Mormon, he he's killed like a wild animal. And and I look at all this suffering that people have endured through time and think, I haven't suffered at all, you know. Mm. But yet in my own life, and, and you know this, Mike, without going into personal details, even in the last year I've dealt with a lot of you know personal hardship and at times anger that um, I don't want to overwhelm my soul, but to try to persevere in light of that. And I think every day it's that can be an emotional struggle that not just me, but we all deal with. And it's like, how do we stay focused how do these people, and, and maybe you've got some life advice for us, Mike. I'd love to hear it. How do you stay focused in, in the spite of suffering, you know? I don't have any advice. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, that is the, that's why there's been 100,000 psychology books written, you know, how to get things happen to, or how to, why do bad things happen to good people? And why is uh, suffering um, present? And that's, <laughs> I don't have a good answer for that. Well, I don't know. I, I think one of the things the Book of Mormon does that we overlook is it explains the balance of life so well in this short little phrase we've heard, but haven't applied it, I think, the opposition in all things, that that Lehi teaches this to his family from the beginning. He says, you know, God is the one who placed the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, not Satan. You know, Lehi didn't say that. I'm saying that. But he's saying there's an opposition in all things. If there's a good, there's a bad. If there's an eternal life, there's got to be an eternal punishment too. And all these things are a parallel. And the, and the, and the difference is when our heart changes, that's the thing that tips the scales in our favor. Well, in all these sufferings of these other people, God has kind of said, no, in life, you are going to witness the good and the blessings, but you are also going to witness the bad. And you are that's part of this existence. It's not something that we're um, shielded from or immune from. It doesn't mean that God doesn't bless and protect and do miraculous things and bring restoration of simple, beautiful witnesses like taste and smell to your wife or mm-hmm. healing you know, your son's knees and all these Beautiful things we can rely on, and yet we know that we will also face hardship. And and the challenge is for me, and I think all of us, is when we face these hardships, to not lose our integrity towards God. You know that was Job's ultimate story: is that in spite of losing family and money and wealth and fame and health and everything, he didn't lose his integrity towards God. And 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 I think God has told all of that for, to told that to all of us from the beginning in some way or another we just have to hold on to it and believe that it's true that yes god you sent me on this errand and yes i encountered hardships that i could have never imagined and yes you are still god and yes these are still your purposes even though it doesn't make sense you know that's where faith faith is exercised in the the times in life when that's all you have sometimes yeah, yeah. To trust, trust, and have faith in in an ultimate uh, goodness that um, that tears will be wiped away one day. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is the faith that I think Israel's been tried with for longer than any other people. In that they've got these scriptures, they know there's supposed to be a restoration. I don't think for most of them they realize it's a restoration to Jesus. Right? They just feel that God will finally vindicate 
them for their sufferings. But this Book of Mormon explains the story of vindication, not for just Jews, not for just people we call Israel and lost tribes. It's for the world to come back to him so that Jew or Gentile, you're one or the other, that means every human being is has this promise extended to to this gracious God who has said, hey, my arm is extended to you. If you will, you can come to me and be saved. And this promise of salvation is ours, whether our life is full of hardships and trials or not, that we know immediately this plan of salvation can take effect in our lives. If we will, like you say, just simply pray this prayer, Lord, help me help me be righteous, help me choose your ways mm-hmm. in, in, in this day, in, in the days that I have heartbeats, breaths remaining. Let me, let me choose you. And that's, that's what it means. Well, he has made a promise to all, all nations and, and all generations that, that there is a holy place, a holy city, a holy dwelling, and that's in the presence of God. And when you say vindication, all of those people that had that hope, they will be vindicated and, and God will be true to his word. Yeah, he will be. Hey, I thought of something cool. I thought we can say um, no script, just scriptures, right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, take your scriptures as you uh, as we all walk each other home, though. Okay. Until next time, God bless.